right, welcome everyone. Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, for making a way for us to come into your presence. May you help us to hear your word tonight. May you help us to understand it and to live it out through what Jesus has done for us. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So it's the last night of Veritas for the semester. Uh, On a more personal note, this is my last Veritas as a director of Veritas. Uh, So it's a uh, sorrowful night for me in many ways. Uh, I've been doing this for nine years now, and it has been a joyful labor for me. I've been thinking a little bit about today because people have been asking me, how do you feel? And I've just felt like I've been doing the next thing for so long that I really haven't had much time to pause and think. But as I was thinking a little bit about it today, I just kept thinking about, one was the staff people that I've worked with over the years, that I've just been had the great blessing of working with people that I respect, that I've been challenged by, uh, that I have been friends with and really have loved working with. It's really made this job a ton of fun. Um, so uh, I, I, it's one of the things that I'm really excited about is the, the staff team that's taking over uh, this next year is a team that I'm really excited about, that I, people that I love and respect and have been challenged by personally. The second thing I was thinking about is over the nine years that Veritas has been in existence, the faces of all the people who've been involved with Veritas. And I don't know why people have chosen to get involved with Veritas. I mean, there's lots of things going on, lots of things uh, involved in in your time. Uh, But it has been so great that all of the friendships that I've built with college students through the years, these last nine years, you know, so thank you. Even those of you in this room tonight, thank you for being a part of Veritas. It has been a joy uh, to be a part of your lives for this stretch, whether it be just a few weeks now or whether it's been four years or maybe even five for some, maybe. Uh, But uh, the other thing is, is just realizing how many stupid things I've done over the last nine years, how many bumbling mistakes that I've made, and yet how God has been faithful to work in people's lives. I have regrets, I have mistakes, but one thing I don't regret is that this is how I've spent the last nine years of my life doing. And I've seen God work in ways that go far beyond what I would have imagined. So that's enough about me. Uh, But tonight, we're not just wrapping up part of my personal story within Veritas, but we're wrapping up a series that that we've been going through uh, the Old Testament and nine people. And so we're kind of culminating up the, the end of the Old Testament. And I'm really excited that this is the last talk because I think there's a lot of principles going forward of the future of Veritas that, that we can, for those of you who are graduating and moving off, what, it, what is God's call in your life? What can we learn from Nehemiah? Uh, because it's a really important part of what goes on in the Old Testament history. Uh, a really dramatic event happened last week that we saw in, as we went through the Old Testament, and that is this, is that everything that God had been promising and building in his, Old Testament, in, in his kingdom in the Old Testament has come unraveled. See, God has promised Abraham descendants and these people that he, he promised to give them a land in Israel. 
And he promised to give them a law. He promised to be their God and that they would be his people. They'd be his representatives to the world. That God would show what he's like through these people. And he gave them his laws to show them what living in such a way that would represent him well would look like. He gave them a king through David's descendants to rule over them, to lead them in this vocation of God to represent him to the nations. But because the people have failed time and time again, that they have not made God their God. And that's what we saw last week, that God had sent them into exile. So here is a map. Uh, What has happened in this stage of history is that the nation of Babylon, who in, in the area of green, has built this empire. They've conquered all these nations. And they conquered Judah and Jerusalem, which was the remnant of God's people this time. And he took them. They were taken And they were taken to Babylon, where they lived for 70 years. And at this time, the people of God are left saying, we've messed up. Are we done? Is is our part in what God is doing in the world done? Is he done with us? Is he no longer working in the world because we've messed up? And for 70 years, they're asking these questions. But at the end of 70 years, something amazing happens. And that is, is that the neighboring country to Babylon was the nation of Persia. And Persia conquers Babylon. And one of the first things that happens is the Persian emperor, Cyrus the Great, allows a small number of Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple had been destroyed. And so now this small remnant of people are left there to begin to try to rebuild Jerusalem. And they rebuild the temple. But what happens right before the events that we're going to look at in the events of Nehemiah is that there are no walls to the city. The gates have been burned. And so this small little remnant that is left to try to rebuild what God is doing in the world, they are at risk. Because during those 70 years, the Babylonians put other nations to live in the area of of Judah and Israel. And so they don't want Jerusalem to rebuild. They don't want them to build walls. Uh, And so they are facing all kinds of risks to try to build this kingdom. And so they are at risk. And, And they are left with a choice. Either we can keep fighting against these enemies and take risks, or we can just stop and just blend in to the nations around us. And so... We, at times, can feel that pressure today. It's that we live in a world where there's opposition as well, right? We maybe feel that a lot or a little, and, you know, but certainly we watch the news and we see what would it be like to live in an ISIS-controlled territory if you're a Christian, where you are being faced with rape, your death, imprisonment, or the rape, persecution, and death of your daughter or your wife. These are the things that people are facing in places like Iraq, Syria, Nigeria, and even on a boat into Europe from Africa, 15 Christians were thrown overboard by by people who didn't like the fact that they were Christians. You know, in places like China and Russia and the Middle East, people are being imprisoned. People are given tax burdens. Here in the U.S., maybe we're not suffering to the same degree. Maybe we don't feel that opposition as much, but we do feel some opposition, right? You you feel like the water is changing a little bit in the United States. We feel that, you know, as Christians, that we're not 
you know, respected very much in the public culture. You know, that there is this perception that we, you know, our beliefs are not good for individuals anymore in our society. Our beliefs are not good for society. You know, even in public universities that are historically known for the open discussion of free ideas, there's many universities across the United States that are banning the Christian voice on campus. The entire state system of California has banned, you know, Christians that hold to biblical truth. SUNY Buffalo, University of New York, has kicked off uh, college or Christian ministries. Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, has kicked off Christian Christian groups off of their campus. So maybe that's not the situation here in Mizzou yet, but certainly we all feel that opposition to some degree. We can kind of feel those stirrings. It's not always cool to be a Christian at Mizzou. And we can kind of feel this pressure sometimes that can lead us to want to just abandon the faith or just to blend in, maybe live double lives to be Christians around Christians and to just be silent around non-Christians. And so we can find ourselves in the same situation that the people of God were in at this point in history that we're looking at tonight. And see, the question that we're going to be asking is, is it sometimes we think the risk is too high for us to step out and be a part of building God's kingdom. That sometimes we just want to play it safe and just worry about our own little lives. But see, lives are not changed in this world by play it safe Christians. The church has not advanced into hardened cultures in this world by play it safe Christians. See, God is calling all of us tonight to be willing to care more about the kingdom of God than about our small little kingdoms that we're trying to just keep safe and protect. And so we all have a choice. I could either be a part of what God is doing in the world or I can just worry about my own little life. But if we're a part of what God is doing in the world, that is going to require risks that will come with a cost because there is opposition in this world. And that's exactly what we see Nehemiah having to make a choice about in the very beginning of the book that uh, has his name in it. See, Nehemiah is in a good spot. Now, he is the cupbearer to the Persian emperor. It's a very prestigious position. And right now you're thinking in your head, okay, the cupbearer is a prestigious position. What the heck is a cupbearer? Well, the reason it was an important position is this. It's because the major thre- one of the major threats to an emperor, you know, if you're an empire like the size of Persia, which is the largest empire in the world at this time, is that you have made a lot of enemies along the way. And one of the easiest ways to secretly kill an enemy is by poisoning them. It was, there were several people in power, kings and emperors who've been killed by poisoning. So the person serving your beverages and the people serving your beverages at certain events, which is mainly wine uh, at this time, it had to be somebody that you trusted. The emperor, when they make someone their cupbearer, they are essentially saying, I trust you with my life. The cupbearer would even risk his own life to play the role because he would sometimes sip the beverages to make sure they're not poisoned. How would you like that job? You know, he would risk his own life to make sure that the wine was not poisoned. And so that is the role. And if you're the one serving the beverages all the time to the emperor, you're around them a lot. You're trusted by them. You sometimes get asked your advice, your counsel. 
So it was a very prestigious position. Nehemiah is friends and trusted by the most powerful man in the world. He has security, he has wealth, he has prestige. And it's in this condition, when everything seems good in his life, that he gets a report about what's going on. And so let's pick up in Nehemiah 1, 1 to 3, when it says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev. There's going to be tons of words like this, so just bear with it. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah hears a report of what God, of God's people suffering. And so the fate of this newly rebuilt temple, this newly resettled Jerusalem, this fresh start that God had blessed them with in returning, that where God can now you know, restore their role as representing him to the nations, this work and this venture is now at risk, at great risk of being snuffed out as it's just restarting. And so what's Nehemiah to do? Is he to say, well, sucks for you, but my life's pretty good. You know, I'm the cupbearer of the emperor. Is that his response? Well, let's just read the next verse. Nehemiah 1.4, when it says, as soon as I heard these, thing, these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He weeps. He mourns, he fasts for days. See, Nehemiah, in this point, shows what's going on in his heart, that he cares more about what God is doing in the world than he cares about his own little kingdom where he's safe. And so the first thing, though, that he does is he doesn't say, okay, I care. Now I'm going to come up with a plan of action and I'm going to solve this problem. That's not what Nehemiah does. The first thing that he does is he takes his sorrow to God. And he recognizes that if God does not work, no good is going to come in this situation. You know, the question we need to ask ourselves, is that our first reaction when we see a problem in our life or a problem in the world? Is our first reaction to stop and pray? Unfortunately, in my own life, that's not often my first reaction first reaction is often to come up with a plan. But one of the things that we see is, is that Nehemiah, that's not his reaction. He understands that he needs God to work. So there's a couple things that maybe we could do to train our hearts, to depend upon God, to trust God in that way and not ourselves. Maybe one thing is, you know, I think we all have this habit of thinking that when I pray, I've got to set aside a longer period of time and I've just got to pray. And if I don't do it in that longer period of time, then I'm done. You know, that's the only time to pray. But what if we changed our mindset and saying, maybe there's certainly times that we do need to set aside to try to pray longer for periods of time. But what if instead we also said, but maybe there's a place for just throwing up a prayer, maybe a sentence or two long throughout the day. And what if we, when we heard something that was concerning us or we were worried about something that was going on in our life, we just began to try to say a quick prayer about it in our head. Maybe that would train our hearts to make that our first reaction of rather than trying to solve my problems, I turn to God and trust God with my problems. But one of the other things that we see that help Nehemiah is in the prayer that we're not going to be able to look at 
he clearly has an awareness of what God has commanded his people, how they have fallen short. He's aware of what God has promised, though, that God has promised to show grace and mercy to them. And see, he is moved to trust God by his understanding of what the scriptures say. And so maybe another thing that we can do to train our hearts, to, to, for, so our first reaction is to turn to God in prayer, is if we understand God's word more than we do. If we spent more time awakening our hearts to our true needs, to God's true character, to who we truly are by being in his word, maybe that would move our hearts to trust in God more as our first reaction. So that's what Nehemiah does is the first thing. But the second thing that Nehemiah does is he puts his chips on the table. You know, so it's a little bit of a poker analogy. He's, you know, you have to put the ante in, but he's putting his chips all in on the table. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is he doesn't just pray. He doesn't just act first, but he prays to depend upon God. And then he takes action, believing that God is at work. That's what Nehemiah does. See, even look at the end of his prayer. This is Nehemiah 111. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so Nehemiah is clearly praying here that God is going to, uh, that God would help him, uh, you know, to do something. But what is this action that he's getting ready to take? Well, he's getting ready to make it known that he's a Jew and he's getting ready to ask for the help of the emperor. See, this is dangerous for Nehemiah. Now, you might be wondering, why is this so dangerous? Well, it's dangerous because of this, that the emperor at this time that he is serving as cupbearer for has the name of Artaxerxes. And we know from the book of Ezra that one thing that Artaxerxes did is that he actually forbid the Jews to rebuild the wall of the city. He has already issued a decree that they should not rebuild the walls because he heard a false report that if the Jews did rebuild the wall, that they were going to rebel against the Persians. And so he issued a decree saying they need to stop. So Nehemiah is essentially going to the emperor to say, hey, you made a bad decision, change your mind. You know, and this is a very powerful person. That he's getting ready. So he's risking his position, his wealth, his security, maybe even his life by going to ask the king this, the emperor this. So this, let's pick up and see what happens in Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been in his, sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, which by the way, short prayer, doesn't have to be a long one. He throws up a prayer. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me 
to the governors of the province beyond the river, they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for, and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. See, Nehemiah risked his own security in order to work for the well-being of God's people. And so I realized that, as I said before, in many parts of the campus, it's not cool to be a Christian. Christians are often thought of as being hypocritical, judgmental, weak-minded, maybe too serious, probably most likely weird, right? Uh, We have a bad PR problem. Uh, This is the problem we have. And so trying to live in this environment, and we want to make a positive impression on those around us. And so in trying to make a positive impression, sometimes we try really hard to not be those Christians, right? But sometimes in our attempt to not be those kind of Christians, it can make it hard to really tell people that we are Christians, to show them that we're Christians, to talk to them about us being Christians. You know, we just stand back and blend in. And we maybe quote Francis of Assisi saying, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words, which he never really said. But we'd say things like that to make us feel okay for not speaking out. And there's a way that that, a right way to use that verse. And I'm all in favor of not being judgmental. I'm all in favor of not being too serious, too hypocritical, or even too weird, all right? It's, you know, maybe there's going to be a little weirdness that comes. Uh, but, you know, I'm also in favor of allowing a relational process instead of trying to cram the gospel into every conversation that we have with people, all right? But there are times when we do need to put our chips on the table like Nehemiah did. We need to tell people that we are Christians, even though they may roll their eyes, even though it may come at a social cost, even though we may be misunderstood, laughed at, or written off. And we need to do so not in order to pat ourselves on the back for being radical Christians, but we need to do so in order to be a part of what God is doing in the world. That's the only way to be a part of what God is in the world is if we're going to be willing to put our chips on the table sometimes. Grady Smith was a Christian who just graduated from college, and he was working at a magazine in New York City. And this is what he said about being a Christian in that environment. When I worked at Entertainment Weekly, I hid almost every aspect of my faith from my coworkers. I was okay letting it slip that I attended a church, but I didn't like to go any deeper. I preferred to be thought of as a dorky square rather than an explicitly religious person because I was terrified I'd be rejected if I actually expressed my beliefs. Obviously, it's no secret that most people in the media, especially entertainment media, are liberal. And as a brand new college grad getting my first taste of the the New York working world, I didn't want to rock the boat by fully owning my identity as a Christian man. I assumed people would equate that identity with being an arrogant Southern conservative. So I kept my mouth shut. This strategy worked out well at first. I was able to strike up genuine friendship with coworkers who would have been turned off by an outspoken newbie who hadn't put any effort into getting to know his environment. But years went by, and I never even shared one of my Christian values out loud. 
I prefer to tweet vaguely redemptive lyrics by Switchfoot or Need to Breathe. And just hope that astute individuals could read between the lines. I was living a lie in hopes of being popular around the office. And that's pretty sad. He goes on to talk about how he realized in the end that this approach was not truly loving his non-Christian friends. Why? Because of two things he said. Because one... I'm not really, I am presenting a different version of myself than I really am to these people that I'm supposed to be loving. And two, I'm not giving a chance to reshape their opinions about who Christians are and what they're like, to change their perception that Christians are crazy weirdos, right? So when Nehemiah put his chips down, he risked his reputation, he risked his security, But in doing so, he helped other people tremendously. And he was a part of what God was doing in the world. See, the world is in need of Christians who are willing to put their chips down on the table. And who knows what cost is going to come in our lives here at Mizzou if we put our chips on the table and let people know that we're Christians. There's probably going to be a cost that comes with that. But on the other side, who knows how lives will be changed when we do. Who knows? But the third thing that Nehemiah does is he mobilizes other people to help. See, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he secretly goes around and he inspects the walls and then he gathers the elders of the people and the people together and he has kind of a a meeting telling them of how the emperor had given him permission and supplies to rebuild the wall. And so this is what it says in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. So Nehemiah begins to mobilize people to begin to rebuild the wall. See, they have been living, though, in Jerusalem, being abused and being taken advantage of by the foreigners living in the land for many years. See, because they have no wall, so they can't defend themselves. So they just had to blend in and play it safe. And they've done this for years. Well, why didn't they rebuild the walls? Well, because they were living in fear. They were living in fear, and they were living in passivity. They were waiting for someone else to come in and solve the problem. And see, Nehemiah makes them take action and stop being controlled by fear. And see, what happens next is one of those parts of the Bible that's kind of easy to just kind of skim over. Why? Because it's a list of names of people who helped rebuild the wall. So let's just take a look at just a few verses of it, okay? So bear with me as I try to pronounce these names. The the sons of Hasanaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshhazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So can you imagine, I mean, just look at verse 5 real quick there. Notice that there are some people who chose not 
to rebuild the walls, who chose not to build the kingdom of God, but chose instead to just keep their nice, safe little kingdoms that were going to come unraveled in the end because Jerusalem's walls were going to be rebuilt. But can you imagine how cool it would be if that was your grandfather or if you were that person, you know, that your name is being listed in the Bible as helping building the kingdom of God. Now, how cool would that be? And how ashamed would you be if your name was being listed as the ones who did not stoop to serve the Lord? See, but that's, in reality, the choice that we're all making. And notice that these are normal people, not spiritual heroes. But see, this is how God's kingdom is going to be built. When normal people jump in to play their part to build the kingdom of God. See, it's really easy to think at times, well, what we need in the church today, we've got a PR problem. We need more people like Matt Chandler, right? We need awesome people who can impact a bunch of people. If we just had more Matt Chandlers, we'd change the world. But see, the problem with this is, is that we kind of begin thinking that it's, it's a way for us to remain passive. That what God needs is really special, awesome people, not normal people me, like me where I have to do something, Right? And see, Matt Chandler does a great job. You know, we need people like Matt Chandler. Uh, But we need people like Matt Chandler who mobilize other people to be faithful to God and building the kingdom of God in the ways they can. That's what we need. So it's, it's mere mathematics here, okay? So let's just think about it this way. Here's a little chart I tried to make to illustrate my point. But let's just say there's one awesome person. I know, I can't make graphics, so sorry. Uh, but let's just say... The, the category on the left, the addition, let's just say there's one awesome person. They reach 30 people. They make an impact on 30 people with the gospel in a year, okay? At the end of five years, they'll make an impact on 150 people. That'd be pretty awesome, right? But here's what's even more amazing is multiplication. Let's say that first guy <laughs> impacts... 30 people with the gospel. And let's say he's out of the picture from there. He's out of the picture from there. 30 people in one year. And let's just say those 30 people the next year, they're, not, they're just normal people. They're not special, awesome people. But let's just say they make an impact on one other person. Just one other person. But each of them makes an impact on one other person in, the, in that year. Well, that number of 30, it grows to 60. But then let's say the next year, those 60 people impact one person. Those 60 people now become 120, become 240, become 480. So in five years, 480 people have been impacted with the gospel as opposed to 150. See, this is how God's kingdom grows. And see, this is how Veritas is going to grow. See, it's really easy to look to the staff people and say, those are the ones who are supposed to impact other people. But there's not a college ministry that's going to really be that significant, to be quite honest, in the end, if it's just staff who are reaching people. What Veritas needs to grow, what any college ministry needs to grow, what any church needs to grow, is it needs normal, everyday people to say, I care about getting the gospel out on Mizzou, and I want to be a part of advancing God's kingdom here at Mizzou, and I'm just going to play the small way part I can about reaching other people with the gospel. We may not have our names recorded in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, we're not. Uh, 
But God sees, God knows. Maybe there are going to be stories told in eternity. Man, God moved at Mizzou in an amazing way. Dean Frazier rebuilt the kingdom of God by reaching out to freshmen in a, in a, when he was a CA. Alex Malott lived in a sorority house, and she impacted people with the gospel in the ways that she came. Plug in your own name as having a conversation with somebody they were in class with that they loved and cared for and tried to make Christianity wisdom too. Isn't that worth living for? Isn't that worth risking for? See, we could all be a part of that story that God is telling. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem faced enemies outside of the walls, people who did not want those walls to be rebuilt. There was one point where they're trying to rebuild the walls where they have some people not building. They're just carrying spears because the threat of attack is so immense. So there's people carrying around spears. And there's also another point where everyone who's building is holding a sword in one hand and building with the other. Can you imagine trying to build with a sword in your hand? And I'm putting bricks up or whatever they're building. But that was how afraid they were. But they didn't let that fear keep them from going forward. They're saying, this was worth it. We're building the kingdom of God. Let's keep going forward. They kept praying. They kept building. But see, they also faced enemies within the walls. There were people who were taking advantage of poor people in Jerusalem. That had to be be stopped. There were people who were marrying foreign wives who worshipped other gods. And this was going to impair their ability to represent God well to the nations. This had to be stopped. There were false prophets who wanted to stop Nehemiah. There were traitors who wanted to stop Nehemiah. And there were also problems in every human heart that was a part of the building project. That they each needed to deal with the enemies in their own heart and repent and return to God. And see, these enemies within and without made the work hard. And see, God does not promise us that building his kingdom is going to be easy. We have enemies in our own heart that make us want to be selfish, to live for our own little kingdom instead of being a part of what God is doing in the world. Every church, every ministry is broken and has problems. And there are ways that it tends to work for its own little kingdom. And those and every group needs to be, and every church, you know, needs to fight those enemies within. And there's also enemies without. There are people who do not like what we stand for, who want to shut our voice down. And so how can we keep building the kingdom of God in face of all these enemies? Well, we can do that because of this, that God is building his kingdom. God is the one who's building his kingdom. See, throughout Nehemiah, we see how God has been at work. Nehemiah 2.18 says, The hand of God that had been upon me for good. Nehemiah 4.14, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah 4.20, Our God will fight for us. See, here is our great hope that the one who calls us to fight is the one who stands with us. God was with them. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the walls. And this is the last recorded events of the Old Testament. 
And from here, they exist for 400 years. It's because of what they did that the city lasts for 400 more years. But they still faced enemies without the walls and within the walls. But what was amazing, and that city did come to an end in 70 AD, but before that city fell, God entered that city in the person of Jesus Christ. And he defeated our greatest enemy, sin, and what it leads to, death, by his own life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus called all of the people in the city at the time, he's calling all of us to be a part of building his kingdom that's never going to end, that's never going to be destroyed. destroyed. And see, is there a better purpose to live for than that? And the amazing thing is, it's going to be hard. It's going to come at a cost. It's going to come with risks. But God says that he's going to be with us. That Jesus promises to be with us in the fight. And so God is calling all of us to stop being safe and to be willing to be a part of what he's doing in the world and to take risks to do it. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess that in so many ways we get distracted and start getting concerned with our own little kingdoms, that we just want to keep our stuff. We want to keep our reputation. We just want to fit in and blend in. And we pray that you would draw us out because of what Jesus has done to live for something that's bigger than just our little kingdoms. May you empower us to live for what you're doing in the world. May you help us to to let it be known that we are your followers, that we would represent you well, that we would take the only hope in this world to those who are dying and lost without it. May you use Veritas in a powerful way to take the gospel at Mizzou. May you work through the students who are graduating from Veritas and are, are going off into new cities. May you empower them to... Uh, represent you well. May you work in all of our lives to preserve us over the summer. May we grow the summer and not grow stagnant. That we might represent you well and be a part of what you're doing in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.